The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the community. This created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Good evening, everybody, and welcome. My name is Eve Patton, and I'm director of the Trinity Longroom Hub, which is the research institute for the arts and humanities in Trinity College, Dublin. And this evening, we have a special behind the, pe- behind the headlines panel discussion on the war in Ukraine. Uh, obviously, the events of the past month or so following Russia's invasion shocked the world have caused a humanitarian crisis and untold suffering and grief. Uh, And they've also created a moral crisis as we confront what appears to be not simply the twilight, but the complete darkness of European democracy. This evening, we want to address this situation, but also to ask how the war in Ukraine has been communicated to the outside world at a time of major transitions and evolutions in contemporary media systems. So our title is Ukraine Changing How We Bear Witness to War. Uh, For this reason, we're co-hosting this evening's event with the Shula Democracy Forum. The Shula Democracy Forum was set up to bring the perspectives of the arts and humanities to the broad questions around democracy. And it takes as its opening project, the scrutiny of the media itself. Uh, and for this reason, we are handing over this evening to Mark Little, who's going to chair the proceedings. Mark Little, many of you will know, is an entrepreneur, a journalist, and a Trinity College graduate. He spent 20 years in broadcast news as a reporter and a presenter for RTE, and was the station's first Washington correspondent. In 2001, Mark won the Irish TV Journalist of the Year Award from his reporting from Af- for his reporting from Afghanistan. And he was also the anchor of the current affairs program, Primetime. He's written three books about the US and world affairs. And in 2010, Mark founded the world's first social news agency, Storyful, which was eventually sold to News Corp. He has worked for Twitter as vice president for media in Europe and managing director of its international headquarters. And in 2017, Mark co-founded Kinzen, which combines editorial skills and artificial intelligence to protect online conversations and communities. Uh, But most important for us, Mark is also, I'm pleased to say, the inaugural media fellow for the Shula Democracy Forum and is based in the Trinity Longroom Hub. So Mark, thank you very much for offering to chair this evening's discussion. Mark is going to introduce our four panel speakers uh, who will each have around nine minutes to give you their thoughts. And then he's going to be opening the discussion to Q&A. So as always, you can put the Q&A or your comments in the panel at the bottom of your screen. And those of you joining us on Facebook can also use the Q&A panel and we'll take as many of those questions as we can. If you are tweeting, please use the uh, handle at TLRHub and the hashtag hubmatters, and we'll put that information on the screen for you. 
Just before I hand over to Mark, I want to thank the John Pollard Foundation, which sponsors Behind the Headlines, and also to express our thanks to Dr. Beata Schuler, who's sponsor of the Hub's Schuler Democracy Forum. But I also want to thank everybody who's joining us this evening to respond to a situation which I know has distressed all of us, but obviously must be kept right at the forefront of our minds. So at this point, Mark, I will, with pleasure, hand over to you. And thank you, Eve, and what an honor uh, to be here this evening with you. First of all, with um, a panelists that I will introduce you in a moment, old friends, new friends, but I guarantee you uh, a range of experiences of the past and the present and possibly as well the future that will emerge from the conflict that we're all watching right now. Um, just to say, obviously, my, my own background stretches from the traditional old days of foreign reporting through to social media, now more to disinformation. Um, one of the things in planning this session, um, just to set it in context for you for a couple of minutes, we had thought about the idea of using that phrase, that ideal phrase, but the fog of war to describe um, this panel. But I think in many ways, it's such an inadequate phrase um, to capture the multiplicity of ways in which this war, this invasion of Ukraine has changed the way that we perceive conflict, the way we remember history. So we just couldn't leave that phrase to be the, the cover for this conversation, because I think, you know, we look at war and it really is uh, history repeating itself as violent tragedy, but it's also in so many cases um, conflicts change the way we look at the future. And this conflict above all, I think, is different in that sense. Um, I think my personal perception, and we can debate this maybe a little bit later, is, is that this war has really changed the way that we witness. And that's the key word. We are now all eyewitnesses um, to conflict because there is now no filter between us and in many ways the front line. Um, social media clearly has played a part in conflicts in the past, but I don't think you could ever really argue that the first draft of history, which used to be associated with journalism, um, is now in the hands of people using Telegram and TikTok and Twitter. And I suppose in many ways for me, there's, there's good news there because I always think sometimes looking back in the way uh, foreign correspondents did their job, there was something a little bit authentic about sending somebody in to report somebody else's nation, somebody else's history. So to an extent, there is some good news here in that we can all see people on the front line, the people who are suffering through this conflict, who are participating in the conflict, uh, speaking their own truth through these platforms. I think we'll hear later a little as well about how, in fact, the fact that we have this visceral eyewitness uh, view of the war gives us the ability to see the growing evidence of crimes against humanity, not weeks or months later, but when it's actually happens. I think it also gives us a whole new generation of global investigators, these open source intelligence gatherers. We'll hear from them as well during our conversation. And I think it also shows us the ability to check those lines in real time. They cannot be allowed to fester. They do not fester because we can see these things. But clearly the biggest worst drawback here is the collapse of context. You know, seeing something is not the same as making sense. And in many ways, the role of the foreign correspondent is now, you know, up for debate. It's a, a reframing has to happen for those who are actually there, uh, the bravery of the people we've seen reporting this conflict. And um, I think seeing a reframing of how the foreign correspondent relates to conflict, but clearly um, they are fighting for relevance. 
when we have seen an information war being waged on so many fronts. I mean, obviously today, believe it or not, the White House or this last few weeks, the White House has been briefing TikTokers. It used to be that, you know, it was the TV anchor um, that was the gatekeeper for reality for people living in the United States. Remember the days when Nixon said when he lost Walter Cronkite, he lost the Vietnam War. Well, today, there's clearly a whole new array of participants in war. Um, we obviously see, you know, Russian diplomats acting as keyboard warriors uh, in, in a battle for information. We see clearly Ukrainian forces on the ground um, fighting with their anti-tank missiles, but also their selfie sticks and their, their camera phones. And we obviously see a real communicator in chief in the former president Zelensky. We all know how effective he has been in commun communicating the reality for his people. But there's so many different realities on, on this war, how it affects the rest of us. I mean, information war spills over into other countries that have highly polarized political debates. We see you know, nationalists in various countries around the world uh, using essentially this war um, to, to fight back against their populist countries, against the elites. I think we also see uh, a man in President uh, Putin who really is trying to not just persuade his own people uh, of this current reality, but rewriting history for Ukraine, for Russia. Um, we also see, I think, a, a certain misconception and maybe a, a negligence on the part of many of us who in the first days of this conflict we talked about this information war being lost by Putin and being won by President Zelensky. But in fact, that's not the truth either, is it? I mean, we have clearly a reality of what's happening on the ground. The perception in Ireland will be very different from the perception in Moscow. Uh, we have obviously two different internets now, where in Russia, there is total control over the information environment. And obviously in the rest of the world, there's a different reality uh, 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 coming to pass. I think one of the things we'll see as well is the, the sheer volume of information coming out of the conflict in, in Ukraine creates what I think um, the author Peter Pomerantsev calls censorship by noise. It used to be that politicians had to convince you that what they were saying was true. And today, they only have to convince you that everybody is lying. So this information ecosystem that's been polluted is one of the bigger realities to emerge from the conflict. Now, I'm going to stop talking there. We have enough to talk about, um, just even the, some of the things I've touched upon. But this panel, as I say, have a deep immersion in the realities of the past and the present of Ukraine, uh, also of the information war. And I know also someone who will be heading off back to report in Ukraine. So very much the role of the foreign correspondent as we'll talk about tonight. I'll introduce our panelists. Um, first of all, I'd like to introduce you to historian um, Orisia Kulik, who is, as I say, deeply immersed in the past and the present of Ukraine, who is assistant professor of German and Slavic studies, political studies at the University of Manitoba, but also a former research fellow at Trinity College Dublin, where she researched uh, the cultural heritage of dissent in former socialist countries. And now, also, I know as a Fulbright scholar, Orisia, you uh, witnessed the Orange Revolution of 2004 and five, which obviously was the overthrow of a Russian dominated government in Ukraine, and now working on a book, I believe provisionally titled, uh, How Ukraine Ruled Russia, Regionalism and Party Politics After Stalin. We'll hear from you in a few moments. Uh, next up on my list here is Kieran O'Connor, an old friend of mine, an analyst 
at the Institute for Strategic Dialogue, working in the research and policy unit there. Um, Kieran specializes in using that open source intelligence gathering and research I talked about to track and monitor misinformation, disinformation, and extremism online. Across those open platforms we well know, like Twitter, but also closed platforms where we see uh, these information threats incubated. And Kieran previously worked in a company called Storyful, where he was one of the bright lights of the, the team of people who've gone on to, to find that particular work. Uh, next up, uh, Dr. Tanya Lockett, who's the Assistant Professor in Digital Media and Society at DCU. And she's researched internet freedom, internet governance, uh, governance in Eastern Europe, and networked authoritarianism which has uh, something never been so important. Tanya is the author of Beyond the Protest Square, Digital Media and Augmented Dissent, uh, which is an in-depth study of protest and digital media in Ukraine and Russia. And Tanya, I know you've taught journalism, believe in Kiev, um, and uh, you've researched the role of digital technologies in the Euromaidan protests uh, of 2014, which, which was such a pivotal landmark event in the formation of the modern Ukraine. Last but not least, a good old friend of mine, Paul Cunningham. Uh, Irish audiences will know Paul as the political correspondent, former environment correspondent, former Europe correspondent. I actually know Paul when we started out together in RTE. Some of us uh, were cutting our teeth on St. Patrick's Day parades and local politics in Ireland. Paul was deeply interested always in foreign affairs, reported from places like Algeria, from the Balkans, and most recently you will know that Paul uh, reported from the Ukrainian border um, on, on the situation facing those millions of people that have been displaced by conflict. Paul joins us tonight uh, where he's attending a conflict, uh, a hostile environment course, readying himself for a return to Ukraine. And Paul, I have to say, if you haven't checked out Paul's reports from 2014, Paul also covered the Euromaidan protests in 2014, and some of that reporting was just stellar, so I highly recommend that. So I'm gonna stop talking. You've got that introduction to everybody. Remember, when we hear everybody talking about, about nine minutes each, we'll come back. I may ask a few questions, but I also want to encourage everybody here to use the Q&A function uh, on Zoom. Also, if you're looking at this on Facebook, you can drop your comments and your questions in there. I will take them. Uh, and also we'll be tweeting with the handle of uh, at TLR Hub and Schuler Forum and using the hashtag, uh, hashtag Hub Matters and hashtag Democracy Forum. So that's a lot to get through. Um, I'm now going to ask Paul to start off in the reverse order. We're going to hear from Paul, Tanya, Kieran, uh, and Arisia. Paul, take it away. Thanks so much, Mark. Um, and I'm speaking to you from the exciting um, Tunbridge Wells. Um, just beside London, where I'm, as Mark said, attending a hostile environment training course, um, which I think is really important for journalists that they don't end up walking into a conflict zone, but they're given some opportunity to get ready and prepare for it. And it's been something that RT has been doing for 20 years here and meeting people from all over the UK and also Ireland, um, all with the same intent, which is to try and be a reporter to tell what's happening in Ukraine, because that's the focus of everyone who is here. Um, my expectation is that I'll be traveling back to Ukraine in the next number of weeks. Um, but as you mentioned, Mark, it's a place which I had reported from way back in 2014 when um, the Maidan protest towards the end of February turned really ugly. And I happened to be staying in a hotel called Hotel Ukraine, which is perched just above the Maidan, overlooking it. And um, the protesters had managed to push the police back past our hotel to a junction. 
they were trying to erect a barricade there and suddenly snipers um, came into view and bullets started to fire, be fired. People were still, unbelievably so, still trying to erect the barricades, burning tires so that you would have black acrid smoke trying to obscure the view of the snipers. And our hotel was taken over. To the left, when you went in the main door, was an emergency ward, triage, where I remember a woman who was a gynecologist by trade trying to treat the wounded. And then on the right, as you walked in, there was the morgue with an increasing number of um, bodies there. Um, it was dramatic, but I think the thing that was probably most dramatic to me was the dangers that many of the journalists were taking. There was one man called Slavo Veremi who was working with the Vesti newspaper. And while I was packing my bags to prepare to go to Kiev, he was a local journalist who was filming from a taxi um, and he was pulled out by a gang, severely beaten and shot in the chest. And on the day we arrived into Kiev airport, he died. And it just showed the, some of the risks that journalists are taking to try and tell that end story. It's nothing new, but it continues in this particular war. And because we're in a media conference, I hope you just allow me one moment to mention a few others. And one of them is Pierre Zakrzewski, who was uh, an Irish journalist who was working for Fox News and died near Irpin, near Kiev. Also, um, the producer who was working with him, Alexandra Kurosheva, also known as Sasha, she was just 24 years old. Once again, they were traveling in a vehicle which was shelled and killed. So it's a reminder of the risks that people were taking. What I'm going to try and do with my few uh, minutes is just to talk about how a journalist works, or at least how I was working. And through that, to try and give you an insight into some of the pressures um, and the evaluations that we make and how those evaluations change over time. The first thing is to say is that my colleague, Tony Connolly, who's also a good friend of Mark Little's, um, was based in Kiev, and he was reporting from inside the conflict zone. He was the person who was having to take those tough decisions about going out onto the street, um, how far was he prepared to go, the risks and dangers, the difficulties getting Wi-Fi, food and drink, and how far to push it. I was working on the Polish border, so there was absolutely no risk to me. For me, there were two things which were present. One was the volume of people who were flooding out of um, Ukraine between March 1st and March 8th. When they arrived, around 300,000 Ukrainians had been processed by the Polish border guards. Um, eight days when I left, the number, I think, was around 1.2, 1.3 million people. And the vast majority of those were women and children who were crossing into Poland and many standing on the side of the road in sub-zero temperatures with no idea um, what was going to happen next, where they were going to go. And the second thing which really struck me was just the response of the Polish authorities um, who were both professional, who were speedy, and who had everything under control. They had the resources of a, uh, being a European member state, but the Polish response was simply remarkable. Um, I suppose just to draw a parallel here, 20 years ago, um, I reported from Kosovo, when uh, many Albanian people were traveling across the border into North Macedonia at Blatze. And at that time, we were relying an awful lot on what people were saying, the stories we were telling us of towns like Kachinik, what was happening there. And it was very limited in what we could do because journalists weren't able to cross the border. So we used a phrase which was that it is impossible to be able to confirm the story, but there's a consistency from the people we met at the border. And the big difference now, 20 um, years on, is the fact that it's all happening in real time. The people who are in these towns and villages, as you mentioned, Mark, all have phones, they're taking their videos, they're posting them, they're up immediately. We don't need to wait for people to cross the border. We already know part of their story by the time they arrive. 
the other thing I thought was important to, to realize was just that it was happening not just at the micro level, but also at a, a sort of an international level. Uh, President Zelensky, clearly a master of the arts of social media. Uh, but also, if you look to the Polish prime minister twice a day, getting out the number of refugees who have crossed over the border and their capacity to assist. So you could see at a high level, medium level, low level, there weren't any press conferences. It was all taking place online. And that was a dramatic difference in the two decades. Just to give you some insight into the, the workload and the pressure you're under as a journalist, for um, television, for example, I would try and have a clip of maybe a refugee or a politician uh, uh, and do a live report. Then there would be a full package for the six o'clock news, and then it would be recut for the nine, maybe starting off with nighttime photographs or images. You would also then be servicing radio from around 7 a.m. You'd also have lunchtime and you'd have evening. You would also then be serving the online page, which would maybe be a blog of what you'd seen uh, and your, your approach to it. You were also then constantly feeding snaps, little bits of information you were picking up along the way. And then you were also feeding social media. So you're on Twitter, not just posting and promoting what you were doing, but also trying to ascertain what was going on elsewhere. So you're talking about 16, 17, 18 hour days. And in the context of that, you were traveling between three or four different locations. We were staying about 40 kilometers away from the border because there just was no available hotel rooms. So that is something which you can't, do for very long. So you're going in on a burn to try and do the best you possibly can until you've effectively run out of time. If you were going to stay longer, you'd probably reduce your hours, take a couple of days break and then go back in for another week or so. And there's always a network of journalists who are around. So when I got to the border, there were people who I'd met in five years, some people from I'd met in Brussels, some journalists I'd met even in, in Kosovo. So there was a, an almost automatic network you would be able to call on. And once again, through them, you were able to meet other people who were able to give you an assistance on what local people were thinking in that part of Poland, what was happening nationally, what the strategy was. But I think as a due to the welter of information, so much of it coming, I think what I tried to do was tell micro stories, what I could see, what people were telling me, uh, and um, stuff I could um, nearly confirm. Um, maybe when I was doing a live report, I might be able to call on the resources of the old traditional way of doing it, calling on wire services, looking at our own website, looking at um, what other people were saying. But in the telling of a story, it was usually to try, keep it micro so you could try and be as accurate as you possibly could. And I think that was one of the sort of safety mechanisms you try and include. And I think it's really important that when you're telling your story, you're try trying as much as possible. Sorry, Paul, you muted there. Sorry, thank you very much. Um, just closing, um, I think one of the other things is that um, a war is um, always dynamic. What was happening in the first days of the war is completely different to what happens later on in the war. We've seen dramatic changes on the ground in Ukraine. We believe that Russian forces are, have moved from the north of Ukraine. They're mustering in the east. And I think it's going to be much harder to tell that story. How can you tell the story of Mariupol when there are no journalists there, when there is no internet, when there is no supplies? And will we face the same challenges if it is the case that Russian forces try to advance to places like Odessa? And I think... And by the time I travel to Ukraine, more likely in two or three weeks, the skills I was using in Poland won't necessarily be the skills I'll be using once I'm inside the conflict zone itself. Obviously, we would hope a ceasefire, we would hope for peace, but I don't think that's the likelihood, Mark. Thank you so much, Paul. I think we'll hand over to Tanya. 
Thanks very much, Mark. And, and thanks, Paul, for starting us off. Um, I think I'm going to sort of go go straight on from, from Paul. You know, Paul was talking about the work of foreign correspondents and sort of mainstream journalists, of which there are also a lot of Ukrainian journalists, obviously, doing this kind of work um, in Ukraine. But um, I want to pivot a little bit and focus on you know, what we typically call grassroots communication or, or not necessarily even civil society, but sort of look at what the ordinary social media users and ordinary citizens are doing, because, um, you know, this this obviously is a situation where because of Russia's war in Ukraine, it's, it's a topic that everybody is talking about and it's all some people's lives are focused around. And obviously many Ukrainians today don't tweet about anything else, right? So they're people's jobs, people's hobbies, people's... Um, research is all kind of taken a, a, a backseat to, to trying to, to make sense of what is going on. Um, and I, I, I know we, we kind of like to talk about um, government communications, you know, everybody's very complimentary of President Zelensky and his communication skills, but um, I think that it's always really interesting to look at the micro level, which is also something that Paul mentioned, and to look at what kinds of things um, ordinary Ukrainians are doing on social media and, and how that contributes to um, maybe, you know, getting rid of some of the fog of war. Um, and, uh, and I think the, the efforts that I've seen, you know, this is the research that I do is I, I look at the daily practices of people on social media. And usually my research focuses on protests and communication around protests or communication around um, trying to get around censorship or getting around surveillance. But in this case, I've been watching and obviously, you know, scrolling way too much, uh, spending lots of time uh, because it's impossible not to um, looking at the kinds of things that people have shifted um, to doing once the active, this active phase of the invasion started. Um, and I, I think it's, it's also important to point out, and I know um, Paul knows this, is that, you know, the, the war didn't start on February 24th. The war started eight years ago. And so a lot of the things we're seeing now kind of taking uh, the spotlight are some some of the things people have been doing and thinking about doing for years um, because of you know the um, occupation of Crimea and the occupation of the eastern parts of the eastern Ukraine um, so some of these things are just now becoming more visible such as human you know talking about human rights abuses or talking about um, impact on civilians and it's just now a lot more visible. So the, the three things that I want to point out um, is that I think Ukrainian social media users, especially the people who are really active online, um, increasingly understand is that they also have a role to play in, in how information spreads, which kind of information spreads, and what kind of frames um, are used around the world and, and in Ukraine to talk about um, Russia's invasion. Um, and as, as one of my good friends on Twitter pointed out recently, um, who is a Ukrainian journalist herself, she says it's really important for us to think about what we put out on our feeds because each of us is a mini media outlet right now. Um, and I really like that framing. You know, we each each Ukrainian, regardless of how many languages they speak and what platforms they're on, they're all mini media outlets. Uh, so what we choose to focus on, especially if we have large audiences, if you know if somebody's an influencer or you know if they're really popular is really important. So one of the things that I've seen people do um, around the conflict in Ukraine is um, coordinate action, right? And so we like to talk about like influence operations, coordinated activity, 
But there's also a kind of more benign side to it when people are trying to coordinate how they talk about specific things, which sources they use, right? Um, Ukrainians have really been trying to prioritize relying on official information, verified sources as much as they can, because obviously there's also been a lot of disinformation, a lot of rumors, and, and there, there's been kind of a concerted attempt to really only focus on information that is verified, also because the Russian side obviously is, is trying to push the other side of it to promote perhaps information that isn't verified or that you know looks more like a rumor but maybe is is more intriguing. Um, so people have really tried to um, coordinate prioritizing verified sources, debunk misinformation to the extent that it's possible. Um, uh, also, um, you know, conduct a kind of online diplomacy where um, they they focus on key messages about you know what Ukraine needs, you know the the whole thing around closing the sky, but also increasingly shift into just give us weapons and give us more weapons because um, peace negotiations don't seem to be working and people keep dying, um, right? So so doing things like that and trying to coordinate also reporting. Um, behavior that is perhaps violent or, you know, sharing of specific images that maybe aren't supposed to be shared. Um, so that, that's all been really important. The second thing is how people have approached actually sharing information, right? Because there is information that's important to know kind of on, um, on the fly, such as air raid alerts, right? And there's been a lot of automation around that. Um, also, um, the kind of education that happens in real time about not sharing live feeds of shelling or bomb attacks because that's dangerous right um, because once you once you share it live it's it's actually really harmful to, to the people in the near vicinity and they could be targeted um, and and I think many journalists who haven't reported from conflict zones before have learned this very quickly because again some of them have actually been targeted and some of them have been killed. Um, because somebody reported where exactly the shell hit um, so people have been learning to so what, what to report and what not to report. Um, the other thing I've seen uh, happening in Ukrainian social media, and I mean, I'm predominantly looking at Twitter and Telegram, but obviously across different apps as well, is this kind of issuing correct correctives, right? Um, talking about um, what somebody's proper title is or how to spell somebody's name properly or how to spell, what's the Ukrainian spelling of particular cities uh, or pronouncing certain words. Uh, and I think that corrective behavior has also been really important. Um, the final thing about sharing information is, of course, the sharing of personal stories and testimonies, right? And Paul alluded to this when he said, well, how do you report about cities that are blocked off, that are besieged, where there's no internet? The only way we can find out what's happening in those cities is when people get out of them and tell you their story. So there's been an incredible concerted effort to record oral histories of people have, that have made it out of cities that were you know, disconnected, who've spent like weeks in basements with no food, no water, no electricity. And sometimes those people tell their stories to some of the collectives that are working on this. I mean, obviously this is also connected to gathering evidence of war crimes, but it's also just important for oral history's sake. And sometimes those people um, have the presence of mind and the strength to go on Twitter and do a Twitter thread. And then somebody else comes along and translates this Twitter thread from Ukrainian into English. And that's how we find out about people's very personal, haunting, terrible, but very necessary to know about experiences. Um, the third thing that I'm going to focus on people doing online um, in Ukraine is this idea of kind of mobilizing public support and solidarity. 
Um, and obviously, you know, this, here we talk more about kind of civil society, but I think it's also really interesting to see that there is, again, some coordinated messaging uh, about, you know, what kind of support we need, which organizations are worth donating to and which aren't and why. Um, and, you know, trusting small human rights and humanitarian efforts has is, is been kind of promoted as being more important because they often know what the needs are much better and can get help to people who need it. Um, there's also been a really interesting um, sort of spate of targeted communications, communications aimed at particular brands who, for instance, Ukrainians want to convince to leave Russia, um, communi communications aimed at particular politicians and political leaders, um, for instance, German ones or French ones, because they're not doing enough and, and you know, they're being difficult. Um, so, again, this kind of uh, public diplomacy, but happening, you know, on, on the pages of Twitter. Um, again, um, I think it's been really fascinating to see um, how people process grief online. And I know this is a, a really interesting research topic, but also at the same time, see the incredible amount of black humor and, um, you know, dare I say, like shitposting about the conflict. But I think it's also a way of coping uh, and it's a way of processing it. And, and that is sometimes really difficult to get across when platforms are trying to moderate content uh, and they don't, don't understand the local conflict or, you know, the humor is really niche. Uh, so there have been some really difficult places um, where people have just had a lot of trouble understanding why a particular tweet or a particular account shouldn't be blocked or, or you know, suspended. Um, and finally, again, I think the role of language and how we refer to the conflict and, and how we understand the conflict and the history of Ukraine, which I know Arisia will focus on a little more in her talk, um, is this idea that, you know, Ukrainians, again, have been issuing these correctives that we're not calling this the situation in Ukraine. We're not calling it the Ukraine crisis. We're calling it Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're calling it Russia's war in Ukraine. And I think this has been really, really visible. And it's been really helpful because I think it, it really helps to frame the situation kind of for what it is. Um, and not maybe hide behind these more neutral terms, which I think is, again, really important to, to the Ukrainian community and the Ukrainian citizens. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of deliberately here focusing on Ukrainians and what they're doing, because I know everybody likes to talk about Russian disinformation and, you know, the, the kind of narratives and frames that Russia is trying to promote. But I think a lot of columns and op-eds have already been written about this. Um, and I really would like to focus on prioritizing um, what the Ukrainians are doing so that, you know, we understand uh, what is going on on the ground in Ukraine. So I'm going to stop there for now and hand it over to the next speaker. Uh, yes, good evening, everyone. Uh, my name is Kieran, and I'm here to talk a little bit about the kind of online um, disinformation dynamics that we've been seeing out. And I will be talking about Russia and disinformation and those kinds of narratives. So it's a nice uh, passing of the torch, so to speak. Um, a lot of my work revolves around tracking and analyzing and monitoring disinformation narratives in general. It reaches into kind of COVID conspiracies a lot of the time, but in the last couple of weeks and even before, uh, a lot of my focus has been on, on the invasion, on the pre-invasion uh, period as well, and how how kind of Russian state-backed entities online were discussing Ukraine and were kind of uh, putting out narratives that were in turn used as, as a pretext. Um, what you often see in terms of Russian state-backed disinformation online, and in particular with Ukraine, was a network of state-backed or state-affiliated news organizations that pump out stories and content that essentially uncritically repeat 
and amplify the comments of Kremlin officials or pro-Kremlin voices outside uh, the government. And these often include uh, many conspiracies that are, that are easily proved false. And the kind of uh, organizations I'm talking about are uh, RT, formerly known as Russia Today, uh, Sputnik News, uh, RIA Novosti is more a Russian language outlet, but all of these state-backed entities that essentially put out uh, conspiracies, missing disinformation, and, and positive uh, commentary about Russia's justifications for war. And when you look at the pre-invasion period, uh, the main narratives here were all centered around uh, framing Ukraine as the aggressor, framing NATO as the aggressor, and um, promoting victimhood narratives, the idea of Russia phobia uh, that portrayed Russia as only acting in the interest of self-defense, self-preservation and protecting Russian speaking populations, both in Russia, but also Eastern Ukraine. Uh, Post-invasion, this changed entirely, as you, as you might imagine, gone were the claims about NATO expansion. And now the, the special operation, as it's referred to uh, in Russia, it was all about denazifying Ukraine, uh, which is the claim that uh, Ukraine is governed by extreme right-wing political and military figures, and that the, the campaign within Ukraine to remove uh, these figures was justified. Um, the most recent, one of the most recent claims was also that Russia entered Ukraine to destroy US-funded biolabs, which were uh, old conspiracies that were kind of uh, lifted up by, by, by uh, prominent conspiracy communities online, like QAnon spaces. Um, as you can well imagine, social media has been key to disseminating these narratives, which are, in effect, uh, disinformation. TikTok, in particular, has been one platform that's been crucial to this. And this is where a lot of my uh, research has focused in the last few weeks as well. Um, we put out a short, <clears throat> not a short piece of research that looked at uh, state-backed or state-affiliated news organizations on TikTok, so RT and Sputnik and Ria Novosti and these kinds of accounts and key leading figures from these organizations and how they use TikTok. Uh, we learned a couple of things with this research. Essentially, uh, it showed that it quite clearly illustrated that TikTok forms a crucial part of the Kremlin's disinformation apparatus, uh, given the large number of accounts linked to state-affiliated news organizations and even uh, Margarita Simonian, who is the editor-in-chief of RT and really one of the Kremlin's chief propagandists, appears on state TV regularly, uh, is active on TikTok and has, I think, over 225,000 followers on the platform right now. It's presented as a personal account, it's verified, but the clips that this account posts are straight uh, videos taken from state TV, uh, videos including her husband, who's also a state, uh, also a TV host, talking about why the invasion was unfortunately necessary, in his words, to denazify uh, Ukraine. Uh, secondly, the, the, the research showed that there's now evidence that TikTok is a highly valuable tool for the Kremlin. Uh, there's been a lot of research in the past around state-backed organizations' presence on platforms like YouTube and Twitter and Facebook, but this shows that, that, that TikTok is also part of this arsenal for these organizations. And in one measure that we took within this research, uh, TikTok delivered more views, more engagement, more eyeballs than YouTube. 
And thirdly, uh, this report clearly suggested that TikTok as a platform was not doing enough uh, to counter uh, Russian disinformation on the platform. Uh, very simple claims that were easily debunked, uh, including the claim that President Zelensky had fled Kyiv. Uh, those videos put out by Sputnik Spanish language accounts on TikTok that had over 1.2 million views, uh, no fact-checking information at all attached to it, and this was going viral on the platform. And also to, to come back to one of Mark's points, very important about how we believe that the, the fog of war and the information war has been so clearly won. What this research also showed was that there is uh, whole ecosystems of pro-Russian supporting content and communities online. Uh, you might be familiar with the Z, uh, the letter that's been put on lots of mil uh, Russian military equipment, tanks, and these kinds of things. Uh, that symbol has also become a kind of call to support Russia online within Russian-speaking uh, communities. Uh, did a quick pull earlier on. We were able to find uh, hashtags on TikTok. One translates as, I'm not ashamed. Another translates as, we don't abandon our own. These hashtags on TikTok, the videos collectively have views of 700 million views and 618 million views. So you can see how popular uh, this kind of content is. And then lastly, I just would like to speak a little bit about, about Busha and the aftermath and the reaction to Busha because um, as Paul and Mark mentioned, this has really been um, kind of debunking, fact-checking, but also disinformation in real time. Um, the, the war in Ukraine is not over, but we are entering a new phase, and in particular, a new phase when it comes to Russian uh, disinformation as well. Um, its disinformation machine is pivoting to disseminate grotesque lies, disputing its forces were responsible for any evidence against civilians. Um, and these tactics have already been deployed. Uh, Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, said the discovery of bodies was a provocation. Um, across the water, the Russian embassy in the UK uh, has also shared the same claims about it being a, a provocation. It also made the claim that the BBC's reporting from Ukraine was influenced by new government funding from the, from the British government. And even here in Ireland, uh, the Russian embassy released a statement that said there are no facts to prove allegations of Russian involvement in the killing of civilians in Busha. And the, the, the activity of these Twitter accounts, these often verified Twitter accounts and, and, and wider across Facebook as well, um, show how the Russian government uses these entities online essentially as disinformation machines, as, as voices to put out the kinds of narratives that dispute, deflect and deny any uh, responsibility and any claims towards um, acts of violence by the soldiers against civilians in the in the country. As you might imagine, lots of these claims are disorientating and contradictions among Russia's own comments are common. Uh, in this respect, Busha is no different. The same approach uh, will be applied to potentially future discoveries of atrocities as well. And if this approach is common, what is the goal here? Uh, absurd denials and conspiracies used to deny and dispute Russia's culpability are often opportunistically plucked from social media and in most cases aren't even terribly convincing but they aren't supposed to be, nor do they need to be consistent. Uh, they come from government figures, state-backed media, or pro-Kremlin voices online, and they all are so common in this approach. Like any disinformation narrative, like any piece of propaganda, the goal is often to shift public opinion, but in this case, not towards a reality where everything neatly makes sense from a Russian perspective. Instead, the aim is usually mass confusion and 
uh, often these methods aren't very sophisticated, but they are very aggressive. And the goal is to obscure and obfuscate the facts, to throw enough things at the wall in the hope that something sticks and people are sufficiently unsure and skeptical about the details around an incident, uh, handing the Kremlin a veneer of deniability. And at its core, it's about making people throw their hands up and admit that maybe we just can't know what the truth is at all. And that's why the other side of the reaction to, to Busha is so valuable and so important, the reaction of, of citizen journalism, of what's called open source uh, information gathering via eyewitness or amateur footage, uh, things that combine open sources of information such as Google Maps or satellite imagery uh, and complement traditional on the ground reporting that can be uh, so effective in disputing and countering uh, the disinformation that comes from uh, Kremlin force uh, uh, voices or uh, state-backed news organizations as well. And I think that's something we might get into in the Q&A, but for now, I think I'll hand it back over and hand it back to the next person. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Uh, thank you. Uh, I wanted to thank Dr. Elspeth Payne and the Schuler Democracy Forum at the Trinity Long Room Hub for inviting me uh, to speak here today. Um, it's an honor to be back, even if virtually in this space uh, where I spent two years as a postdoctoral fellow. I think the frame of this conversation is a good one, how we bear witness to war in these times uh, when the fog of war is intensified by various social media platforms. Um, my role here is to provide some historical context for what the other panelists have been talking about. And I, I should say that we specialists on this region and Ukraine are invited to these panels, um, often to guess the mind of Vladimir Putin, Russia's president, and what propelled him to invade Ukraine. None of us can really do that, uh, if we're totally honest uh, with ourselves. We can interpret the available evidence, uh, the signs, the rhetoric, um, but no one can with 100% certainty uh, say exactly why he made this decision. And a good friend of mine um, reminded me over the weekend that attempting to do so imposes order on disorder, imposes rationality on irrationality. Um, so just very briefly in broad strokes, at the center of this crisis war invasion is are three things, uh, NATO expansion and whether uh, the West and the Americans in particular made and broke promises uh, to the Russians after the unification of Germany in 1990. The second issue is Ukraine's place in all of this, right? And the, the circumstances it finds itself being in the neighborhood that it's in. I personally think it's clear Ukraine was not getting into NATO anytime soon, uh, but not closing the door officially and formally on this is a contributing factor. The third thing that is uh, discussed uh, among scholars and analysts uh, thinking about this historically is Putin's uh, fury over what he perceives as Western hypocrisy. So he has talked a lot about Yugoslavia, Iraq and Libya. When challenged on Crimea, his response is, well, what about Kosovo? Um, the, uh, the underlying message here being, if they can break the rules of the international order, why can't we? Now, I'm not discounting the explanatory importance of these factors. This is a war that has unfolded over many timelines with different inflection points, but they are not enough to explain what's, ha what's happening here. If we are taking seriously what Putin says about geopolitics, uh, we should also take seriously his comments about Ukraine and Ukrainians 
and the mission he sent Russian soldiers into Ukraine to accomplish. As some of the other speakers said, Putin wanted a couple of things, uh, to defang U Ukraine militarily uh, and for its leadership to declare neutrality. So that was um, that's sometimes referred to as the Finlandization of Ukraine. I would add that this is the same Finland that is now considering NATO membership in the wake of Russia's barbaric war in Ukraine. So, and um, as Kieran pointed out, he also called for the denazification of Ukraine, which in the very, very early stages of this war, analysts thought, okay, maybe this is code for regime change. So removing the Zelensky government and installing someone who would be more favorable for the Russians. I think we know now that that is not what Vladimir Putin meant by that term. Evidence gathered from the ground, circulating wildly on Twitter and other social media accounts, to my mind points to a very different kind of war. For me, one of the early conceptual turning points, so when I first smelled smoke and wondered what kind of fire is burning, was when I read uh, in the first or second week of the war, I mean, I don't know how the rest of you feel, but for me, time is very fuzzy at this point. Um, but I read across a number of news sites, uh, Ukrainian on social media, that Kadyrovci were spotted in the northern suburbs of Kyiv. So places whose names are now very familiar to all of you, Bucha, Irpin, Hostomel. And what that meant is that paramilitaries loyal to Chechen warlord Ramzan Kadyrov were part of this first wave of assaults on Ukraine. When the Russians trialed and tried and failed to capture the Antonov airport in Hostomel, which would have been an, an important staging point for a prolonged siege of Kyiv, and they failed to hold that, air, uh, that airport. Kadyrov's forces helped the Russian army defeat uh, an insurgency in Chechnya, especially uh, during the Second Chechen War. They did this in large part by waging a merciless campaign against civilians um, of terror, of torture, of rape, of gang rapes, executions. So when I heard that Kadyrov's forces had ensconced themselves in courtyards and apartment blocks in Irpin, my heart sank. I, I understood then what kind of war the, the Russians would be waging against Ukraine and was stunned into silence. I mourned the women, the girls, the children, the men who would suffer at the hands of these forces and the Russian battalions fighting alongside them. I dreaded hearing about the brutality they would inflict. I dreaded the moment those crimes would be uncovered. That moment came just over a week ago after the withdrawal of Russian troops from the Kyiv region, from Bucha, from Irpin, from Hostomel, Borodyanka, Motezhin, Vorzel, and other endless locations. So the list of horrors inflicted on those civilians in Ukrainian towns reflects what we saw in Chechnya. And this is just the tip of the iceberg, right? Kharkiv, Ukraine's first, the first capital of Soviet Ukraine, saw its civilians terrorized and its architectural wonders pummeled into smithereens by, uh, from the air by Russian artillery and missiles. Reports that Russia might have used thermal barracks in the Sumy region in Okhtyrka caused alarm about what is coming next. These are vacuum bombs that suck all the air out of the surrounding area and have the power to incinerate human beings. They're among the worst weapons ever created by man. The merciless siege of Mariupol has not ended. As we know, children are reported to have died from hunger and thirst. Maternity wards full of pregnant women were 
uh, about to give birth were bombed. And this is coming from Vladimir Putin, whose own family survived the Nazis' brutal siege of Leningrad. Privation, hunger, this is one person who should know better. And these and other war crimes need to be verified and cataloged by investigators, forensic specialists, those building a case for Putin and his generals and his propagandists to be tried at The Hague. It's unlikely to happen, but it's nevertheless uh, important to commit these atrocities to memory and the historical record. Now, what has bothered me about analyses of this war is that when one approaches the question from a, I don't know, world systems, a geopolitical and internationalist perspective, one loses the texture uh, of what is happening on the ground. Um, and then this war is presented as just one of many wars that has taken on a barbaric character. But all wars aren't the same. And I'm sure our fellow uh, panelists might, might, have, might, might be able to weigh in on this uh, with their experiences. Um, I think the tactics employed by the Russian military tell us something about the motivations behind this war. The power structures and hierarchies shaping its conduct and the military's own institutional history. A post-colonial lens could also be very useful here. Um, but most analysts are not accustomed to thinking about Ukraine in these terms. Russia's president has stated repeatedly that Ukraine is not a country. Its existence is a quirk of history. Lenin and Stalin putting the place on the map of Europe. The people living in Ukraine are Malorosi, little Russians waiting to be liberated by the new Tsar. He does not recognize Ukraine's sovereignty, its independence. He does not acknowledge cultural and linguistic differences between Ukraine and Russia, as is frankly the case with many Russians and Russianists with a capital R. Uh, nor does he recognize the divergences in historical and lived experiences that differentiate these two peoples. So for my part, I think the information coming out of this war, out of Russia's war of aggression on Ukraine, presents new epistemological and conceptual problems for us to think about. So if we're situating this war in boxes and categories we already have, we're missing an opportunity to think about how we bear witness to war and what the underlying motivations for this war are. The question I'm left with is what happens to our interpretations when we take not our focus, the angry pronouncements of a vindictive man, but the civilians, in particular, the women and children who are being targeted and on which he and his army have inflicted terror. The dominant narrative of a Russian army surprised by an unexpectedly spirited and effective Ukrainian military starts to look less convincing in my view. The argument there being that Russians had, had planned a swift tactical demilitarization, uh, quick regime change uh, in Kyiv, and when these plans were thwarted, they then shifted to uh, old techniques and strategies honed in places like Syria and Chechnya out of necessity. So an improvisation rather than being part of the plan. Uh, I'm not convinced anymore by this argument, not based on what we're seeing in Ukraine. For me, the presence of Kadyrovsky there in these suburbs from the very beginning uh, throws something else into focus. I know that wars attract warlords, but I'm left with a lot of questions. And I would like to just end by saying, thinking about Ukraine on its own terms does not diminish the suffering of others in conflicts worldwide, in the past or in the present. 
What it does do is it shifts the conversation and the locus of analysis to Ukraine's relationship with Russia, to internal factors in Russia itself that explain how a war of aggression on this scale was planned and conceived and why it has substantial support within Russia among regular citizens. It's tempting to attribute this war to the brain of one person, right? But we know from history that this simply cannot be the case. And to launch a war on this scale involves many in a large web of complicity. And while I think it's always important to keep the international context in mind, we must look at Russia itself and how its army is behaving in Ukraine if we have any chance of understanding what motivated this catastrophic invasion in the first place. Thank you. Ulrisi and Tanya, Kieran, Paul, thank you so much for what a really wonderful journey across the landscape. But I do want to just stay with you for a moment, um, because I think you make such an important point. You know, we can talk about geopolitics, we can talk about swift military victories. This is about civilians and the cost. But you also make a very good point where you say, you know, we're tempted to impose order upon disorder. And I hear a lot of international observers of Russia saying, well, you know, Russians are starved of information. They're subject to extreme censorship. If they only knew what was going on, and the other side of that, I always tend to feel is that maybe Putin is tapping into something very deep. Maybe it's like a collective memory in the Russian people. Where, where do you stand on that? Do you think Putin is someone who's imposing a reality on the Russian people or simply mining an existing deep-seated historic sense of, of their, their place in the world? I, my answer is unfortunately, I think it's both. Um, I have subjected myself unwillingly to Russian state controlled media. Um, I watched their coverage of this, um, the massacre in Bucha and, you know, I was like, these guys are really good at what they do. You know, they, they very, in a very sophisticated way, kind of twist reality and, um, you know, on the eve of this war, independent Russian media was shut down. There are really serious questions about how much they know. That said, information is getting through. So I don't think it's fair to say that they're living in a hermetic seal. I think Russia, Russian state media has created an alternate reality. Um, but Russia and Ukraine, I mean, the, these are countries who have families that live across the border information is getting home. People are calling from Ukraine saying, this is what's happening to us. And their relatives on the Russian side are saying, we don't believe you. So I think that is tapping into something deeper. And that's what I'm suggesting that we, we need to take a closer look at. Thank you. And we've already got some questions coming in and remind you again, please, in the Q&A, just throw your questions in. Some great questions here. Um, there was one more question I want to pose to all of you, uh, the, the panelists here. You know, this was, uh, the invasion of Ukraine was, you know, people poo-pooed the idea this could happen. There was no way it was going to happen. Literally, the day it happened, it was going to be a swift campaign and Kiev would fall in days. That didn't happen. For you, all experts in this area, this field, this time, has there been one thing that has surprised you um, or, or challenged your fundamental assumptions since this invasion began, since this suffering unfolded? I throw it out to all of you. I can I can maybe take a stab at that. Um, I think for, I I definitely was not surprised by what happened and how it unfolded. 
I think, as I said, you know, the war didn't start on the 24th of February. And if, you know, I think those people, and especially Ukrainians who've been following the events of the past eight years by virtue of, you know, being part of them, I, I don't think people were surprised at how, maybe how well the Ukrainian military was able to repel the conflict, nor the fact that Ukrainian citizens who were not in the military were also participating in you know the the resistance so to speak so everybody joined doing whatever they could i think perhaps what surprised me was you know um how 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 much solidarity we saw and how quickly i mean i know you know our president because that's his job he complained ukrainian president complains that like oh we're not getting enough we need more we need more support we need more help and he's right but but i think perhaps generally ukrainians were probably quite skeptical about how much support they would get from from the you know the global community um because for for the past 8 years the support has been very limited the sanctions have been very limited you know and and like that you know so that perhaps i think that was a nice well under the circumstances a nice surprise you know at how much solidarity and how much support ukraine has received notwithstanding the fact that you know we need more and, and it needs to continue because for Ukrainians, you know, it's not just a war for a piece of land or territory. It's it's a war for for their very own existence. You know, as Arisha so so eloquently pointed out, and I think also it's you know it's not surprising that this has unfolded. And as you know, it's it's not really about NATO or or about Ukraine joining the EU. It's it's about Ukraine being Ukraine, right? Um, and I think Orissa's proposal to, to really look at it in a colonial and post-colonial perspective is, is a really valid one, because if you adopt that lens, then you understand how, um, how Russia's relationship with Ukraine and also some of the other countries in, in, in if we say, can say that, in Russia's former orbit unfolded, um, that you know, for, for centuries or decades, um, Russia has been trying to appropriate culture, history, artists, painters, musicians by, you know, referring to them as Soviet and therefore Russian. When in fact, you know, many of these people have been Ukrainian, Estonian, Georgian, but that's not how the majority of, of the population knows them. And therefore, from there, it's very easy to spin the narrative that ah, these aren't real countries. They don't deserve to exist as sovereign states. The only sovereign real state that deserves to exist is Russia. Uh, and I think from there, right, that if, if you follow that thread, there is nothing surprising in what's currently happening uh, on the disinformation stage and on how the arguments for, for this war are being presented. But the support has been incredible. And I, and I do want to acknowledge that. Anyone else surprised by something that's changed the way they think about their, their field of expertise? Yeah, I think that um, one of the things which struck me in its related field is that issue of political support back in Ireland for the actions which have taken place. It's a, a related thing from what Tanya was saying, the very idea that you had um, so many different politicians unified in the approach that Ireland would take a lead on this. And that the Taoiseach Michal Martin would be saying, our home is your home until such a time as your sovereignty is restored. That there was no equivocation on where the blame lay. There was a Russian invasion, a sovereign state was under attack, and Ireland was going to try and do something about it. And there is a parallel that, that it's um, 
kicked off a big debate uh, once again about what is a neutrality um, from an Irish point of view and what do we mean by it, what are the limits to it and whether or not we're going to reconsider it. But in both of those cases, I think they come back to the same thing, which was if you're talking about the, the level of disinformation that Kieran was talking and it's being pumped out through social media, one of the ways of countering that is by having people on the ground. It is having that firsthand testimony of those women, those mothers and their children crossing the border and talking about who they are, where they came from, what they saw, talking about not just that fact-based thing, but also the emotion of my God, what has happened to them, about their husbands, brothers, fathers being left behind, about the women I met at midnight with two plastic bags and three um, young toddlers looking out and not having a clue about where they were going to go. Those personal stories, which were told by Tony Connolly in Kiev and in Poland, I think framed, uh, for the Irish people at least, what this conflict was about that was picked up by the um, politicians who are now running with it. And even today we saw um, Simon Coveney at the Luxembourg meeting of the uh, Foreign Affairs Council saying that Ireland is pushing for an embargo on oil and it's pushing for more sanctions on oil. So I think that was a level of response which I certainly didn't anticipate. That surprised me, Mark. Now, that leads us to a, a commonly held criticism for those, not just the Russians, not just those people who are, you know, against the, the war, who say, well, you know, Paul, you've been fighting for your whole career to make people care about those who suffer because of conflict. You've been in the borderlands of Afghanistan and Pakistan. You've seen it. And now here we are and this huge international interest in this war. Why is it different? Why is it not the same as Palestine or Yemen? Uh, starting with you, Paul, I mean, how do you respond to that kind of whataboutism that why do we care more about Ukraine? What is the biases at play here? Well, as you say, there's there's a lot of things going on. One of the tweets I had out uh, just a couple or posted a couple of days ago related to what's happening in um, Somalia, in Ethiopia, and Eritrea, where we have an absolute disaster unfolding with 15 million lives under threat. Um, and that hasn't generated the same um, publicity. I think there's a number of things which strike me. One is the capacity that we're talking about World War III and nuclear bombs and the end of civilization. It's on a scale. Um, which is so dramatic that it's able to punch through, say, for example, ongoing conflicts like Yemen, like what's happening between Israel and Palestine. Um, it's of such drama um, that it's captured people's imagination. I think we're also people who are regionally focused. This is something where um, something is happening, for want of a better word, in our backyard. Those um, 2.5 million refugees which have pushed into Poland um, so far, those Ukrainians who have been forced out due to the Russian invasion, they're coming into an EU member state, which means e the European Union as a concept is looking at it. And then we're also looking forward. We know that there's, according to the International Organization for Migration, 10.5 million Ukrainians who were displaced inside the country. And if it is the case that Russia pushes west, then that's going to cause huge difficulties for those people, but also knock-on effects for the European Union. And once again, that feeds into a political plan of what are we going to do? So I think those are some of the threads as to why what's happening in Somalia doesn't get as much coverage as, as what's happening here. Anyone else want to comment on that? Perhaps, Kieran, I could just come to you because I think there's one thing I've noticed about um, sometimes the amateurishness or the ridiculous nature of, of the, the Russian disinformation to you know, deny satellite imagery that we know has been taken on a certain date. It does speak to the fact that the world sort of 
information ecosystem, our immune system is so depleted by years of you know misinformation and disinformation. Um, what do you think that says about the, the, the Russian disinformation just being so grotesquely uh, mistaken about, about the way that our information systems are now? That's kind of what <clears throat> I was kind of getting at in talking about how it's it's not, there's, there's a lot of talk about the the kind of uh, puppet strings of Putin and the, the, the alleged sophistication of it. But when you really do look at the tactics and the dynamics of these kinds of accounts online or these kinds of government spokespeople or these verified Twitter accounts linked to embassies, it really is just there's so much crossover and there's so much contradiction and there's so much uh, contradiction within their own narratives. And that what they really have is just, uh, I mean, uh, Tanya used the phrase shitposting earlier on. It's, it's a similar form of that, of just throwing enough noise to confuse, to make people skeptical. And even that kind of idea of, of what aboutism is, is picked up in these kinds of dynamics as well is to use these contradictions as to wider geopolitical issues to try and make us doubt ourselves and our own convictions, our own arguments as well. And what really has shown in, 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 in Ukraine in the last six weeks is the acceleration. We've, we've dealt with the acceleration of disinformation and bad information online over the last few years. And it's almost just been ratcheted up again in how look at the aftermath of Busha and uh, not only were, were, were potential war crimes being denied in real time online, but they were also being investigated in real time with a complementary uh, on the ground, but also um, open source work, the works of like the visual investigation team, the New York Times, for example, that was debunking online as well. And it just shows that we really are in, 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 in so many different ways, this conflict has, has accelerated so many different topics as well. One of those topics, Kieran, staying with you, is, is the evidence that we're gathering in real time of, of war crimes. Um, now, there's two questions here. One from Marcus Berefis saying, could we do more to catalog and collect this information on atrocities? Are NATO, the US, you in real time satellite drone imagery uh, and capable of identifying culprits? Flora McCarthy, I think, would be a friend of us, a friend of ours, is asking, will there come a time when technology will be able to provide irrefutable verification? Of evidence now, I've heard some people expressing doubts as to all this evidence could be used in a war crimes tribunal, for example. Where, how close are we to to having irrefutable evidence that we could be going to the ICC and you know convicting people? Yeah, well, that 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 school of, of study is actually uh, accelerating to use the phrase in, in its own right as well in the last few years a lot of work has been done by uh, I think it's the human rights center out of berkeley in california for example in in creating the norms and the guidelines around how to create a, an effective uh, evidence locker or using footage that has been sourced or, or passed through social media sometimes creating best practice around preserving metadata so that you can uh, confirm the the, the geo coordinates upon which a piece of footage was taken or speaking to the the person who took the footage, all these kinds of forms of best practice. Uh, lots of organizations, be it Human Rights Watch or Bellingcat or others like them, have been uh, very active in not only uh, seeking out and creating their own form of evidence lockers, but also uh, trying to positively use the power of the crowd online to have uh, to, to crowdsource essentially evidence for potential investigations in the in, in the future. So there is the academic and the legal side coming, and there also is the the online uh, activist side as well. And I think we are 
positively moving in the right direction. I know that Bellingcat helped out on, I think it was a general Naftali or Haftali in, in Libya as well, using, I think it was the first time a, a ICC, a warrant was issued that was primarily based on open source footage, on amateur footage and on kind of verification as well. So things are moving in, in a positive direction. In a wider sense, Ukraine has really um, put the magnifying glass over these kinds of, of, of mechanisms as well. And I think you are entering into uh, a very relatively, of course, but a, but a very um, interesting time for that school, of, for that discipline, that school of thought as well. But Arisa, can I come back to you for a moment? Because there is a famous quote, I think attributed potentially falsely to Solzhenitsyn, who says, you know, um, we, you know, the, the Russians, they, they lie. We know they lie. They know that we know that they lie, but they still lie. And it just feels right now that there's a certain impunity, it seems, from, from Putin, even as we see these um, irreversible, indelible images of, of war crimes. Um, is there a sense for you of helplessness now that you know they may get away with it? They may feel that they are invulnerable to being held to account? Yes, um, helplessness is a is a pretty strong is a pretty accurate way of characterizing how I feel, um, and I think it like for me it happened. I mean, it's happened repeatedly over the last six weeks. But the the sort of response, the official response to Bucha, the Ukrainians did this to themselves. This is like a staged uh, a staged massacre. These people may be dead, maybe they're not dead. This was done at the behest of the United States, and I. I just felt like, I mean, this just cast this cloud of doubt over something that seems pretty straightforward, right? And then several days later, we they're shelling a train station in Kramatorsk with this missile that has for the kids written on it. And then it's like, well, is that going to be part of some distorted explanation uh, for the domestic audience about what happened there? You know, and this sort of descent into informational disorientation, I think. Like I it was nice to hear from you as practitioners and journalists how you see this. I mean, you actually gave me a little bit more hope than I was feeling. Because um, you know, they they are very practiced in shifting the the conversation um in ways that are, you know, not great for the pursuit of truth and uh, and what we need to sort of get out of this mess, so. Well, there's something coming in there, Giovanna Lima's the first question and was saying, you know, the idea of being a witness also brings the implication of being a witness. We're all implicated in some form when we see this. So I suppose that is a very powerful um, statement to make, but I think very accurate. There are a few questions coming in. Paul, if I can go back to you about the nature of your role as a foreign correspondent. Now, I remember in the old days, um, you were, whatever war you were covering, you stuck by a satellite dish, you couldn't move. You know, you had uh, local journalists working for you, didn't speak the language. Has it become, I know you've talked about that, those 14, 16, 20 hour days, but is it easier to gather information now as a foreign correspondent because of technology? Um, or do you feel you're just overwhelmed by social media to the point of, uh, you know, just not being able to cope anymore? I think it's the opposite. Uh, I think it's a huge benefit. I think it's a great help. Um, I don't feel overwhelmed by it. It's giving me insights into where people have come from, um, what's going on inside in the cities, 
you get the chance to see something without a protective lens. And um, one of the first wars I covered was um, the Bosnian War way back in 1993. And I was in the UN safe haven of Bihać. And in that particular time, the safe haven, um, the Bosniaks were being shelled, there were snipers, there was um, landmines. And at the time, I, there was a huge amount of statecraft around. The United Nations was there. People were getting food, but they weren't being uh, allowed to have weapons to protect themselves. And the people were saying to me in those places that um, I don't want to be fed today to be shot tomorrow. And it's an echo of that and what's happening in Ukraine. It's very different. Um, one sidestep there was that um, I was also uh, the Europe correspondent who was able to go and see Radko Mladic, the military commander in Bosnia, prosecuted and ultimately jailed for war crimes, genocide, uh, crimes against humanity. So it may have been uh, more than a decade and a half later, but it was something I witnessed the war, but also witnessed the accountability. But bringing it back to what you mentioned there, just about the information, I think that um, this thing here, which is probably now the, the most scientific um, evidence and device you have. Um, we were mobile, you know, reporting from four or five couple of check, uh, checkpoints on the Polish border in towns and train stations. We were feeding our material back as we went. Um, it was being, the TV package was being pulled together by a craft editor, which meant we were mobile, which meant that we could go to a border, we could have a look around, we could speak to some people and we could get better, better witnesses to be able to tell us their stories, give the viewers a better insight into it. But more than anything else, when we were traveling around, I was just flicking my phone. I was able to go on, put in just hashtag Ukraine and hear what people from Ukraine in Ukraine was saying happening to them at that moment, real life, not waiting for 24 hours or a week. So to my mind, you do have to educate yourself how to get around the propaganda, the disinformation that Kieran's talking about, but absolutely, it's a fantastic tool, the best tool I've ever had. And out of conflicts I've covered, once again, it's just a different dimension. Paul, I would pay tribute to you and others. I think a lot of journalists in this conflict have realized they don't have to cover the breaking news anymore. You know, I remember in the old days being particularly remember in South Lebanon, watching one particular correspondent waiting uh, every day at five o'clock with Israelis Bond and Olive Grove to stand there and say, behind me, something's happening. And I think what I've seen from the best journalists in the field in Ukraine is becoming sense makers. You know, not chasing necessarily the latest uh, explosion, but but literally giving us the context. And I think that's been something um, that I would pay tribute to Pete, you and, and Tony and all the folks we've seen over the last few weeks. So um, I think but that also may be- the, Sorry, just to interrupt, but also yeah, like, it's the Ukrainians themselves. It's the Ukrainian yes. camera um, men and women. It's the, or mostly women at this stage for obvious reasons. The producers, the drivers, the, they are also just putting themselves on the line just as much as any European journalist. And that was the point I was going to make, Tanya. You you had the fabulous phrase there. You said um, this obligation on independent journalists and eyewitnesses, Ukrainians. Uh, every one of us is our mini media outlet right now. I mean, what role is this independent, authentic grassroots media playing in forging a kind of a new identity for Ukraine? Because it wasn't a unified society necessarily, as recent history tells us. Is is Ukraine almost being recreated by this sort of multiplicity of individual media outlets? I mean, I think it's, well, first of all, the, the mini media comment is not just about independent Ukrainian media or journalists, it's about everybody, every user. Um, I think though that, you know, this is actually a phrase about, you know, oh, we're seeing the emergence of a unified Ukrainian national identity. I think it's just the rest of the world is seeing it. Ukrainians have been seeing it for, for years. And I think it's just, 
we finally found a focus and the ability to tell this story and to, to, to tell the world about, you know, yes, we are actually a nation and we've existed for not for the past 30 years. We've existed for generations. We have amazing poets. We have amazing um, artists. We have amazing literature. Uh, and we're, we're here to tell you about it. Um, and I think for me, like, that's that's why it's so important, I think, to Ukrainian social media users, including journalists, to be able to tell these stories and to find, you know, to find a, a willing audience to hear to hear these stories. I think Ukrainians are now a lot more um, clear on why they need to have good English at the very least, and also potentially good French or good German or good Spanish. I, I know a lot of um, Western social media users are su surprised and sometimes suspicious at how many Ukrainians on Twitter speak such, such good English. But the Ukrainians are like, well, it's the only way to get you to listen to what we've been trying to tell you. So, you know, we've been making an effort here, but it's true. Right. And I think like we've seen the really the, the birth of some really nice um, independent Ukrainian media outlets. There was one literally where like a whole staff of a newspaper called Kiev Post walked out because they had a disagreement with their owner and they started an, another independent media outlet, the Kiev Independent, literally a week before the invasion. And they went from like several hundred thousand users to over two million on their Twitter account, all because they made it a, a priority to focus on independent English language reporting, uh, which is so important, right? Because it's it's great that we have so many foreign reporters coming in and doing justice to these really human personal stories, reporting on the aftermath of um, of you know some of the towns that have seen the worst of of Russia's aggression. But it's also the Ukrainians on the ground that know the context, that can explain the, the nuances, that know the people, know the names, can, you know, sometimes draw those connections that maybe not everybody can draw, which is so valuable, you know, explaining like what the joke is, explaining why this person isn't to be trusted, because they, they like to talk about things that aren't necessarily always true, and just explaining the significance, you know, of cultural um, moments of small towns that seem insignificant to people and yet have rich histories. And, you know, so I think all of that has been really, really important. Uh, and, you know, and that's why we say it is, it is actually on, on every Ukrainian to, to be able to explain things to people. So we, we see that role as incredibly valuable and it's, it's really fantastic that social media gives us that opportunity, even though there's a lot of noise. And Rich, just one question we have from Felix Larton here, but, you know, we're talking now about the West and, and the, the, the world listening to Ukrainians telling their story. But what about back in 2014 when the annexation invasion of Crimea? What was a failure there for the media, for the West to be more critical of, of that event back then? Uh, it's too late now. Um, maybe they should have done more to stop this happening. Arisi, what do you think about that? I feel like the, if my memory serves, I think people were pretty critical of it then. Um, I think um, there were sanctions. There was not a military response, right? Like I think that I think that's what Felix might be alluding to. Um, possible obligations the United States, the UK might have had um, given the transgression of Ukraine's um, territorial integrity. Um, but I think that moment actually shows us a lot about what Ukraine is for the West, too. 
I've said more than once uh, that I think that policymakers in the West have tended to view Ukraine in similar terms that Moscow might. So, um, and I think that has shaped uh, the response to events in Ukraine, um, not just in 2014, uh, but earlier. So if the same basic assumption motivates decision-making in both capitals, Washington and Moscow, then I think you can start to make sense of it. Sorry to say we're running out of time, but Kieran, I just have one more question for you. And that is one thing I'm seeing a lot in disinformation in the West um, is, is essentially Russian disinformation works best in societies that are already polarized. And we've seen in the past with the conflict in Syria when mass displacement of Syrians has contributed to these polarized social media campaigns in the West. Are you seeing that, that, that basically, you know, polarized political groups uh, in countries, I suppose, like Ireland and Europe are capitalizing on this conflict for their own domestic purposes? Yes, and uh, a, a conflict like this or an event like this uh, provides such an opportunity for these kind of conspiracists, but also for conspiracy communities uh, online as well. And and there's a kind of two-way street here as well, though, is that these kinds of communities have been um, sharing and have, have always been living in a Russian information ecosystem for, for many years now because uh, outlets like RT have actively cultivated uh, interests and, and, and interactions from these communities as well. Uh, if you look at the kinds of URLs, the kinds of news stories that pop up time and time again in COVID conspiracy uh, chats, for example, they're RT or they're Sputnik stories talking about uh, not so much telling you that uh, you know Russia is better than the West or anything like that, but just uh, driving the cleavages uh, within existing uh, conversation, perhaps around uh, vaccine trust and not to go too far into the COVID conversation, but taking these points that, that may be um, places of polarization and just kind of turning up the temperature with kind of content like that. And it, and it is a two-way kind of interaction where these kinds of communities have long been sharing um, content and information by RT and these organizations because they've also cultivated these communities. And, in, uh, and then the, 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 the sad consequence of that kind of interaction is that when RT or others put out commentary from Kremlin officials saying that uh, Bucha was actually Bucha was actually carried out by Ukrainian forces looking for provocations so they can get more um, military equipment from the West, there are willing crowds and willing communities of people uh, in Ireland, in the US, in every country who will uh, who will play the role of the useless, the useless idiot, to use the phrase, and will uh, willingly amplify that and will seek to uh, do the Kremlin's job for them in trying to muddy the water and confuse and dispel, deny and, uh, and deflect uh, their responsibility for such crimes. Kieran, thank you. And, and I'm sorry to say this, we're going to have to bring it to a close there. What I do want to note is, and Kieran, to your point there, one of the questions I see from Jackie Brown is, you know, just expressing that fear that if this war continues, you know, we become desensitized to the the situation. And I just want to pay tribute to, to all four of you tonight for focusing not necessarily on geopolitics or what people got right or wrong, but continually bringing this back, as Tony just did a moment ago, to the people on the ground who are reporting it, don't get in front of the camera, um, to those people, the mini media empires, the people being sense and order, as we've heard earlier on, 
And also then, Kieran, obviously you doing the great work of developing resilience for us as consumers of information. So again, it all comes back to the human reality, which I think is what will keep us focused and resilient uh, as the enemies of democracy, whether they're in fighting in, in Ukraine or trying to fight an information war in our doorsteps and our lives. I think that's the key, keep the human context um, to resilience. So again, sorry for such a uh, brutally uh, curt summary of everything that we've discussed here. I think everybody would agree and, and the comments coming in are universally reflecting uh, the kind of breadth of the conversation, but also the insight. And, and thank you all as uh, safe travels uh, to you, Paul, as you go out there. Um, I thank you, Arisia, for, for such a wonderfully uh, vivid account of what's happening and, and Tanya for speaking for those people on the ground right now who are telling their stories in a way that couldn't have been told perhaps three, four years ago. Um, with that, thank you. And I'm going to throw back to Eve for a, a couple of closing comments. And thank you for the lend of the hall, Eve, and, uh, and to Ellie. Well, thank you very much, Mark, and all the speakers. And I'll echo that point about the integrity that all of you, Mark included, have brought to a landscape of, of disinformation and obfuscation and for the clarity uh, and historical sensitivity with which you've, you've discussed uh, the situation in Ukraine and the fog of war, the media lens as it is developing, uh, including the tributes that all of you have paid to the Ukrainian journalists and their teams on the ground uh, in, in very, very difficult circumstances that they're enduring. So much appreciation to you all. Uh, and this conversation will continue. For those of you who've listened in, uh, there is a survey which will be put into the chat if you want to add further comments or respond to some of the things that you've been hearing. Uh, and I hope that people listening will join us again for more conversations. Um, tomorrow uh, at one o'clock, I will be in conversation with uh, our Trinity Longrim Hub Visiting Research Fellow, Professor Rashid Khalidi from Columbia University in New York. Uh, and Professor Khalidi is a world-renowned expert on Middle Eastern history and politics. Uh, he's currently exploring the parallels between Ireland and Paris, Palestine in terms of colonial history. So that's at one o'clock tomorrow and you can find the information on the Trinity Longroom Hub website, uh, along with many other events. So please do um, sign up again. But for now, I'm going to close with my thanks again to the Pollard Foundation and to Dr. Beata Schuler for their support for this evening's event. And of course, to our four speakers, to Paul, Tanya, Kieran and Arisia, and to you, Mark, for chairing uh, so expertly. Thanks too to Dr. Ellie Payne for coordinating this event and Francesco Rafferty, who did our technical coordination uh, and all of the hub team. But most of all, thank you to everybody who has joined us and who has listened this evening and for your questions and comments. I look forward very much to seeing you all again, whether it's online or in person in the near future. But for now, take care everyone and good night. The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures, stamping provenance Languages towards the history of the Time of Year Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities this created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Here's to the next 10 years.